0: It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
1: Welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we are extremely excited because we have two very special guests, Dr. Bob Langer and Dr. Charlie Roberts. Dr. Bob Langer, if I put everything he's done into this intro, it would probably take the entire podcast. So I'm just going to put out a few highlights and we'll dig into a few things more when we get into the podcast. Bob is a trained chemical engineer. He's a scientist inventor, investor. Bob is a professor at MIT, and he's also a faculty member at the Harvard-MIT program in Health Sciences and Technology. He's also at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. Bob has over 1,400 granted or pending patents. He also has over 250 patents that are licensed or sublicensed out to companies. He's one of the most cited people globally, with over 371,000 citations as of today. And some of the discoveries he's most known for in the fields are within biotechnology, drug delivery systems, tissue engineering. Obviously, Bob has also started many successful biotech companies, including and we'll dig into a lot of that today. And then Charlie, Charlie is a clinically trained entrepreneur. He's co-founded companies on both the therapeutic and diagnostic sides, and he's worked with some notable scientists, including Carrie Mullis, who's a Nobel laureate and inventor of the PCR. And Charlie is also a co-founder of Freenome and an advisor to ARK Invest. So welcome to you both. Sorry, that was a mouthful, but lots of impressive things that have been done so far. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining. We're excited that you're here. Maybe we'll just dig in in the interest of time. So one of the things that really stood out for me in looking at your bio was the patents. We just mentioned how many you have, which is really impressive, but also the amount of licensed and sub-licensed patents, which is over 250. And that's to different pharmaceutical, chemical, biotech, medical device companies. I'm a bit of a patent junkie myself. I have a few patents. I was on a patent review board. So I'd just love to hear about how you got into patenting and maybe some of your favorite patents that you can highlight or some of your favorite licenses that were accomplished.
2: Sure. Well, I got into patents actually back in the 1970s. We actually got the first patent at myself and Judah Folkman at Boston Children's Hospital. I still remember that's probably one of my favorites because I remember getting rejected five times and that everybody at the hospital said I should just stop because we were wasting so much money. But when I was doing this work, everybody told me and Judah Folkman that it was impossible what we were trying to do. In fact, what we were trying to do was actually develop the first micro or nanoparticles that could deliver macromolecules like proteins or RNA. What I did is I looked in the literature to see if anybody who told us that this was impossible, if anybody wrote it down. So I actually found an article in the literature that said that it was extremely surprising that we did this. And when we showed that to the examiner, he allowed this patent, and that was based on a paper we had written in Nature, and I think it's a patent with a 4 million starter or 3 million starter, so it's a pretty old patent. But that was one of my favorites. In fact, when I got into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, that's one of the ones they've cited.
1: And speaking of citations, I think that was another sort of big thing that stuck out for me in the intro, just that you've cited over 371,000 times. And I think that was as of a few days ago. So it may have even gone up since then. 374,000 now. <laughs> <So. Okay. laughs> even since the time we looked it up, it's actually gone up. So pretty significant. And obviously, you've also won a ton of major awards. Would love to flag that you are one of five living individuals who've received both the United States National Medal of Science in 2006, I believe, and then also the United States National Medal of Technology and Innovation in 2011. So at Arc, we obviously focus on disruptive innovation. I'd love to just hear about how you feel about innovation and company fundamentals that both seem to be doing pretty well or staying consistent. But obviously, we're seeing a downturn in the market currently. So I'd just be curious if you had any thoughts on maybe specific biotech factors that you think are impacting the market or if you think it's maybe general macro conditions.
2: Well, I've been around long enough and I'm old enough that I've seen this happen before more than once. I do feel it's a couple things. One, it's definitely general market conditions that has a big factor. I mean, everybody, no matter what they're investing in, pretty much has gone down, probably unless they were shorting a lot of stuff. But now there's inflation. There's What happens is biotech companies are highly speculative and people are betting on promise. So in an up market, they often do very well. In a down market, many of them don't have sales and they get crushed people are conservative. And so I think that particularly ones that have promise and not sales, they don't do as well. I fully expect them to come back. They always have, because the ones that have promise and even no sales, that promise, of course, can turn into great rewards later on, whether those companies get acquired or whether they come out with their own products. But in a down market, biotech stocks generally do not do well, at least in my experience.
1: And I think it's been interesting to see, too, that even sometimes when companies have reported good news, we haven't seen the stocks react as much. So it's been an interesting time to switch over to something happier, maybe. I've heard you love magic, so I'd love to hear how that originated. And maybe if you think there's any type of relationship between your love of magic and your love of science or how those two correlate. I was
2: interested in magic ever since I was a little kid. I mean, mostly because it just fascinated me. I had this chemistry set when I was a little boy, Gilbert chemistry set, and I'd mix the chemicals together to, you know, you'd see colors change. And I suppose things like that got me interested in chemistry, which is a good part of what I do today. But I think just the idea that you can find something surprising, see something really magical happen. That, I think, always is fascinating to any scientist. And so I do think there's a clear correlation between magic and liking science. I mean, a lot of science is kind of magical. And when you see great things happen, like I've been fortunate enough to see both at companies and in our own lab, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I love the idea of the intersection or convergences between and among different verticals. So magic and science isn't one that always comes together so intuitively, but I think it's super interesting. So speaking of companies that have been successful, you're obviously a co-founder of Moderna. So maybe we can talk about mRNA a little bit. I think for starters, for anyone who doesn't know maybe on the call, I think it'd be good to hear your definition of what is mRNA just to start pretty simply. And also we know that this is a pretty ideal solution for the COVID-19 pandemic as we've clearly seen it play out. It was able to be done really quickly. And also SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. So it seemed like it was just a match made in heaven. But what do you think mechanistically or maybe a different reason that you'd like to highlight would make mRNA an ideal candidate for some other type of indication like cancer?
2: Sure. Sure. Well, one thing to think about is that protein therapeutics have been incredibly successful. For me, I was fortunate being an advisor to Genetech starting in the 70s, and you can see what's happened with protein therapeutics now. Most of the best-selling drugs in the world are proteins. But it takes a long time to make proteins. You have to make like certain vaccines and eggs, as you know, it may take a year. So you're having to guess at what you're gonna do, say in the case of flu. And every protein therapy needs giant cellular reactors and so forth. So there's a central dogma in biology. And that central dogma is that DNA makes RNA, makes protein. So if you could give somebody RNA and do it in an effective and safe way, then you could make protein. Why is that potentially better? well, one, you can make RNA and figure out the right RNA in a day or two. That's actually what Moderna did in the case of the COVID situation. It really wasn't because that was an RNA virus. It's simply that you knew what the structure of the spike protein was and you could make an RNA against it. So the idea is that it's incredibly faster to do this. You can do it in a day or two to make it and then you put it in nanoparticles and it works. And the reason it works so well is that rather than take a year to make it in eggs or whatever, the body does all the work. You just take a little bit of RNA, put it in a nanoparticle, inject it into the body, and the body will make the protein. Not only does it do that, you can start to treat diseases you never could have treated before, diseases that are intracellular for a basis or membrane-bound for a basis. So it opens up all kinds of additional opportunities. Really, I don't see much limit in terms of what messenger RNA can be used to treat. If you look at what Moderna's pipeline is, there's probably now over 30 different diseases or vaccines being studied in human clinical trials, not just COVID. So there's about nine other vaccines. And by the way, to your question, that even includes personalized cancer vaccines. There was just an announcement yesterday about how Merck and Moderna are working together to come up with personalized cancer vaccines where you could take a patient's cancer, biopsy it and know what the right antigens are, and then train the body by injecting a vaccine to attack that person's specific cancer, which I think is very exciting. But there's so many others, too. Cystic fibrosis, rare diseases, heart disease. It's pretty unlimited. So Bob, thank you for that. This is Charlie. I've got a side
3: question that I'd love to get to if we have time, which is if you'd confess to blowing anything up as a teenager. Playing with chemistry. Or maybe maybe you want to take that one first before the next serious question.
2: Sure. Well I'll tell you a story along those lines, Charlie. You know, I remember reading about gunpowder and my friends and I thought we'd make some gunpowder. And I think if I remember correctly, it was sulfur, carbon, and I think it was potassium nitrate. And I had two of those three. But then I kept trying to figure out how to get the other one. And I remember we did make it, but I don't think we compressed it right. But a funny story was about 10 years later, you know, when I was an adult, I remember going into a pharmacy and there's this little kid, must have been about eight years old, and he kept asking the pharmacist for one of those chemicals. I think it was potassium nitrate. So at any rate, he kept asking it. And the guy kept saying, well, why do you want that? Little boy said, "I, I just like it. And he must have gone on for about 10 minutes. Of course, I knew exactly why the little boy wanted it. (laughs)
3: I love it. Well, my dad discovered my own gunpowder plot, literally in one of our outhouses when I was a child, when he went looking for his favorite breakfast bowl, which I had apparently taken, and it was my little stash of charcoal, sulfur, potassium nitrate, and it was just drying when he found his favorite breakfast bowl full of gunpowder.
2: Well, I should have been talking to you, Charlie.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Back onto the mRNA questions. Do you think there are certain indications that you believe will be very successful in the longer or midterm, that you think would surprise others or where others have most pushback or debate? That'd be very interesting to hear.
2: Well, I'm very hopeful that new cancer therapies will be one of them. You know, what I just mentioned, I'm very hopeful that for many reasons, I would love to see these personalized cancer therapies be added to the arsenal of molecules that can be used to treat cancer because it's such a terrible disease and because I think this idea is a very powerful approach I mean, there's obviously others too, but that might fit into the criteria that you just gave. Thank you, and do you think there are any areas that almost certainly never will apply
3: as mRNA? Do you think there are any blackouts there?
2: Well, see, to me, let me try to answer it this way. Part of the issue is how well you understand the biology. I was just speaking to a very well-known pharmaceutical company uh, Monday night. They had a board of directors meeting, and they asked if I could speak to them. They're one of the biggest companies in the world. And the chairman of the board said to me, he said, Bob, at Moderna, you guys, you come up with a cure for COVID or a treatment for COVID, the vaccine, in less than a year. How come you or nobody's done that for Alzheimer's? And I said, well, the big issue is, in the case of COVID, you know what the issue is. It's a spike protein. You have a target, and if you block that, you can have a huge effect on the disease. Unfortunately, with Alzheimer's, in my opinion, the biology's not understood. So I think really the answer to your question, which is a great question, is when the biology is reasonably well enough understood, I think mRNA is gonna be a great way to treat things. But when it isn't understood, I don't know whether it's mRNA or anything that's gonna help you. You really need to understand the biology for a number of diseases. And until you do, yeah, mRNA won't help, and I don't know that anything else will either.
3: Yeah, thank you. And is there anything you're excited about, new technologies or approaches on the horizon that you've seen that you think really will help us get at that causal biology of human disease that you think might change the game in the 10-year time frame?
2: Well, I do feel some of the things that we and others are doing, I mean, again, this is just one example, like trying to recapitulate organs and tissues on a chip. We're working with Li Wei Tsai, one of my colleagues at MIT, and I have this fantastic postdoc from Stanford, Alice Stanton, and we're trying to create a mini brain on a chip, you know, really to recapitulate these things. And of course, if you can do that in vitro, and there's other people doing this kind of stuff too, you know, different kinds of organoids. if you can use them, you can do high throughput things and that might greatly accelerate the pace of discovery. So I do think things like that will be helpful. They certainly provide a new set of tools. And other people, too, like Gio Traverso and I have created a gastrointestinal tract on a chip. Both Sangita Bacha and Linda Griffith at MIT have created livers on a chip. A couple of my former students, Milika Retsik and Gordana Avaniak, have created hearts on a chip. And there's companies like Curis and others that are creating even whole bodies on a chip. So there's all kinds of, I think, interesting work going on. Those kinds of things may really help. Cell Link also has created various things like skin on a chip.
1: Sorry to continue going back to mRNA because whole bodies on a chip is certainly a really interesting prospect. And one I've been thinking actually a lot about from the cancer perspective, a close family friend actually was using organ on a chip to try and look at what chemo he would respond best to. So the applications there, I think, are really, really interesting. I don't know everything you guys are doing with the organs on the chip, but would be interested to hear more about the applications there.
2: Well, no, I agree with you. I think the applications, they vary depending on what we're trying to do at MIT and at a company, Vivitex, that Gio, Traverso, and I helped start. There, we're just looking at ways of it tremendously enhancing drug absorption for all kinds of molecules, whether they be complex molecules like RNAs to small molecules like vancomycin. But you can test tremendous numbers of excipients and develop strategies for greatly increasing the bioavailability of all kinds of drugs. In the case of the brain on a chip, they're looking at possibly new ways to affect Alzheimer's disease. In the case of hearts on a chip, Various companies are looking at the drugs for toxicity, and can you test whether it's going to be toxic? Can you test whether it's going to be effective? And so there's all kinds of things that you can do. Curis, the company that I mentioned that's doing a whole body on a ship, there using artificial intelligence, collaborating with Merck on different things.
3: Thank you. It'd actually be fascinating to hear your take on that. Obviously, Moderna has incredible data scientists and AI scientists. Do you think AI is living up to its promise and in the sort of time frame that you anticipated? And is it just steady growth as you'd anticipated? Or do you agree with some who feel that there've just been many false dawns and lots of disappointments in AI and drug discovery and development?
2: great question. Let me take a step back on AI. I think the big issue with AI is doing it right. You know, I think it can be very, very useful. But if lots of times people just say, you know, you can go to the literature, get all this data in the literature, put it in some program and you'll get an answer. That's not going to be true. The problem is you have to have really, really good data sets where everything's done the same way with the right controls. And if you have that, then I think AI can be really, really useful. By the way, I'm saying this because I've learned it from AI experts like Regina Barsley at MIT, but a lot of people just advertise or act like you could do this on food or you could do this on other things that are... But if you have any variability in the conditions then you really can't compare the data sets. So you really need data sets that are totally comparable where every experiment's done the same way with the same reagents, the same purity, and so forth. And given the changes you're seeing in that data generation process and the new,
3: exciting companies coming through, and indeed academic research groups, would you be happy to put your finger in the air and make a call as to what percentage of the overall clinical pipeline you think might have been at least significantly touched or even predominantly developed by AI in say the 10 year or the 20 year time frame.
2: You mean in the future?
3: In the future, yeah, what proportion of the pipeline, because right now I suppose the clinical pipeline is very, very, very few companies and very few drugs.
2: I think it really depends, I mean, I don't think it's going to be the major driver. I do think that the major driver for ultimate success, like I said, is understanding the biology. But I think it will be useful, I, I don't know what percentage. If I were telling people how to use their resources, if that was the goal, I still think the number one thing is going to be basic curiosity-driven discovery to understand different diseases. But AI, if you have good data sets, that could really help. So like when I was talking about the organs and tissues on a chip, I think you could combine that with AI and get a lot of useful information maybe may be helpful.
1: I think because this is ARC and our focus is on disruptive innovation, I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts. We're talking about how AI can further reduce maybe time to market for new therapies and maybe even vaccines. But do you think there are other things that can potentially accelerate those types of things? Like we can get to market quicker. We have less failure rates. We've said through our research that we think it could be through better sequencing technology, technology better AI, which is a very kind of blanket term, but maybe better neural network algorithms like AlphaFold can predict proteins or protein structure or other things. But what kind of things do you think may be able to further those improvements? Do you think it's just AI? Do you think there are other elements that may help? Because I do think we're going to be better and faster in the future at getting therapies and vaccine candidates to market. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think those elements will be.
2: So I think all the things you said are right. I guess I'd add to that, to me, the biggest bottleneck in moving things faster generally is human clinical trials. Things like looking at what I'll call the proteome, the immunome, and the genome. and really trying to understand, let's say you had data sets, and I think AI can help you in this probably a lot is if you can really characterize, let's say you had a fingerprint, whether that fingerprint is going to be through the proteome or the immunome or genome, let's say you got a fingerprint doing that, using the fingerprint idea generally, because people have a lot of genes, a lot of proteins in their body, but you could probably look for patterns if you really had this and try to characterize whether there's some populations of patients that might benefit from a particular treatment. Those kinds of things like I say, immunome, proteome, genome, maybe metabolome too, you know, those kinds of things I think will also accelerate, make clinical trials much better. You know, you'll be able to segregate patients who may really benefit in situations. So I would add that to the list of things that you've already appropriately mentioned. Thanks, Bob. And One thing, you've
3: obviously been an incredibly successful academic turned entrepreneur, at least, and you've really enabled some incredible things, both commercially and to actually reach patients, which is what matters most of all. Do you have any thoughts or anything you've learned or that surprised you or just really any guidance advice, whether it's people in their PhD or postdoc or even early or mid-career academics looking to maybe make an impact in industry and how to walk that line and that balance and really be as successful as you have in both domains? Or does that just mean no sleep ever?
2: Well, I mean, in my case, I've been lucky and I've been at it a long time. I've had my share of failures as well. But to me, I believe in doing high-risk, high-reward things. I'd rather try to do something really important, even if I don't succeed, than to do something incremental and succeed. But I think other things that might be helpful are paying attention to understanding intellectual property. I also think it's important to realize these things are a team effort. When I look at companies that have been involved and that have done well, I don't ever think it's because of me, because it isn't. I like to think that when I've been involved, the science of the companies and the patents have been good. But really it's been because we've had a great executive team, particularly the CEO. I mean, Moderna is very successful because Stefan Monsell is a great CEO and Lou Arfayan's been a great chair. Stephen Hogue's a great president. I think having a great team is just so important if you're going to be successful. It doesn't come just because of the academic founder. You have to surround yourself with great people who are a lot better than you at particular things. Yeah, thank you.
3: And one of the maxims we hear a lot in entrepreneurship is really perseverance is the biggest success factor. And I think there's a huge amount of merit and truth to that. But of course, at the same time, Sometimes being really focused on knowing when to quit things is the right thing. Do you have any example from your career of any time that you persevered, whether it was academic or entrepreneurial, and it was the right thing to do and it played out? And conversely, any time when you persevered and ultimately in the rearview mirror, you decided that was the wrong thing and you should have quit?
2: Well, I'm not big on quitting, but let me tell you a story, which I think is important And along the lines you said. It's a question of whether you're talking about a generalized technology or a particular company. So the studies that we did back in the early 70s with Judah Folkman, that, as I was mentioning, led to the very first nano or microparticles that could deliver large molecules, which could be anything, DNA, RNA, small molecules. We've started various companies on that. One of those companies was Bind. I think the technology is very good, but the business people got a loan from a company, Hercules, and Hercules Called the loan. And that forced the company to, well, I wouldn't say quite go under because they ended up selling it to Pfizer, but obviously it didn't do great. And of course, everybody after that said, you know, nanotechnology will never work. But I always felt that that was wrong. I mean, I felt nanotechnology in the right places would do well. And two other companies I was involved in, even though nothing had been approved at that time, now, of course, the nanoparticles are all different. Lots of people's made them, you know, make out of polymers or lipids, but El nylam one of my students Kenna Kink, King, led an effort where they got on Patro-approved in 2018. And of course, the classic example now, obviously, is Moderna and BioNTech using nanoparticles. That's part of the whole basis of the COVID vaccines and will be the basis of many other messenger RNA therapies in the future. So I think the question is, you can stop working at a particular company but that doesn't mean that the general idea is bad. And in fact, the general idea I thought was great when we did it 50 years ago, and I still think it is today, but you might have to find the right application for it because all these things are platform technology.
3: Got it, thank you. So to paraphrase, maybe just know where you are in this sort of stack and the layer of abstraction and how close you are to a true generalizable platform and continue to persevere there while you may kill individual projects and sub parts of the platform as you go if they just don't work.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Or if you have enough time and money, if the science is good, I think you can get them to work. But what we all know in medicine is you don't get that many shots on goal. So some individual companies may not do as well because they don't have the money to try five different diseases or 10 different diseases.
1: You mentioned a few things there, Bob, that I think were really interesting. So one IP, obviously, as I mentioned, I'm an IP nerd. So I keep going back to IP. But from an IP perspective, we can use Moderna as an example, or we could use others. But thinking about the IP for Moderna, obviously there are different companies saying different things. Nylum with the LMP, maybe a separate LMP dispute with Albutus, Royvant, negotiation or settlement or litigation, whatever you want to think of there. So, how do you think about IP from like a strategic perspective? How do you think about enforcing your own IP, especially during the COVID pandemic? That was a bit tricky because. Enforcing IP there could be challenging. We even saw sort of with China, some of the negotiations maybe went a little bit south during IP discussions. So just curious how you think about IP during a pandemic, during an endemic phase, if we want to use Moderna as an example or overall strategy for IP.
2: Well, I think there's two different things. I mean, most of the time, I think you enforce your IP. In the pandemic, I think what Moderna did, I think, was very thoughtful. You know, we had some of the earliest seminal patents and we went out of our way not to enforce it for several years because we didn't want to have any negative effects on anybody. Even now, we've made a point of saying, well, all of the co-vaccinations, we're never going to enforce it against them. On the other hand, if somebody really copies what you do and they're not in one of those places, then you do enforce it or you at least say, well, to the other companies that are infringing, offer them the opportunity to license it.
1: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing that you touched on a little bit throughout the podcast, but one thing I wanted to highlight is your expertise in delivery. So for mRNA vaccines, but for many other therapeutics as well. So I just wanted to touch on maybe thinking about l delivery or others, highlighting some of your inventions, entrepreneurships within the delivery sphere as well.
2: Yeah, nanoparticles and microparticles are one. You know, I had the pleasure of working with Alchemies for many years. They acquired a company, Enzatech, that I helped started. They've gotten quite a few different microparticles approved by FDA for some of the major ways of treating opioid addiction, schizophrenia, for example. There's lots of others, drug-eluting stents. Our patents on that were licensed by Angiotech and Boston Scientific. So there's a lot of things, but I'm excited about some of the newer things. At Lindra, we're creating pills that can last for a week or a month for the entire course of treatment. We came up with another pill that Nova Nordisk is licensed that can deliver large molecules orally. So there's all kinds of things in delivery. We're also creating self-boosting vaccines at MIT. We're starting a new company on that called Omnipulse. So there's a lot of things that we do in delivery that I hope have made a difference, i like to think, and I hope we'll continue to do so.
3: Thanks, Bob. And maybe a last question, because we should let you go. And this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. As well as being an alpha academic and a company starter, you've also managed to balance this with being a family man and a dad. And do you have any thoughts or any lessons or takeaways for people considering that both their career and their family life and how to make that all work? Obviously a juggling act.
2: Well, that's a great question. What I did when I had to travel by myself, I would never be gone for very long. Like five years in a row, I had to go to Israel for something like an award or something like that. And I didn't use a hotel. I would just fly over give my lecture or whatever, get on a plane. They have a 1 a.m. flight from Israel back to the U.S. I'd even have dinner with my Israeli students over there. So I was never gone very long. In fact, that's been something I did that was very important to me when my kids were little. I also would take them one-on-one with me on some of these trips. Those I, of course, spent longer time. I have three children, and I would take each of them. And the nice thing is now they're in their late 20s and early 30s, and they still want to do those trips with me, even though some are married and so forth. So I think one-on-one time with the children on doing things is also very useful. And I also married somebody, my wife, Laura, who's very straightforward. She always tells me exactly what she thinks, so I always know where I stand. And I think all those things have helped. A minimal hotel time away means minimal chance of your
3: own kids making gunpowder while away,
1: yes,
2: <laughs> yes, thank you,
1: Bob. We know you have other commitments, so we want to let you go to them. But first of all, the one a m flight I've done from Israel, so you must have been very tired if you were doing that once a year, it's a tough flight. <laughs>
2: There's one advantage to being short. You know, when you're small, I'm about 5'6". So the only thing that's good about being short is it's very good for airplanes. Yeah, you can sleep
1: better. <laughs> I'm 5'4", and I still don't feel that way. But, and then the only other thing I was just curious about was you mentioned you had students in Israel.
2: Many. Uh, there are professors everywhere. I mean, every one of the Israeli universities. Also, they've started companies. When I was over there the last time, about two dozen took me
1: out to dinner. It was great. Oh amazing. You definitely did something right if your kids still want to travel with you. And I definitely still want to travel with my parents. So <laughs> But Charlie and I just want to thank you. This has been super informative and incredible. And the work that you've contributed to the field has also really been remarkable. So we thank you for your time. We know you have other commitments and we think everyone will really enjoy hearing your insights. So we appreciate it. Thank
2: you so much. Great questions. I wish you both the best. Thanks so much.